Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. In 2020, events have again shone a light on inequalities across the globe, and Australia is not an exception. 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pierce. Policy Forum Pod is brought to you by PolicyForum.net and we are based at Crawford School of Public Policy. We're the Asia Pacific's leading graduate policy school and you can find us at the heart of Australian politics and policymaking here in Canberra. We're home to some of the leading experts in climate, economic and health policy, plus many other policy areas you might be interested in. There really isn't a better place to study public policy. Check out our variety of short courses and degrees at crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study. Now, today we've got something a little special for you. If you're not active in the world of podcasting, you might not know this, but for us, it's a very exciting time of the year. Submissions for the Australian Podcast Awards are coming up this month, and we've been working hard behind the scenes on putting together our entry. Along the way, we've had the chance to listen back to many of our favourite discussions from the last year and a half or so. Now, we all know that happiness grows when it's shared. So today we want to share with you some of our favourites. Over the course of this episode, we invite you to join us on this little trip down memory lane, revisiting some of our most engaging, emotional and insightful discussions. From this year's bushfire crisis to drug policy to Indigenous health to the beginning of COVID-19, we hope you'll enjoy this Policy Forum Pod Best Of. To kick off this journey, we return to the beginning of 2020. Seems a lifetime ago now, but it was when Australia was reeling from the bushfire crisis. With COVID-19 taking up a lot of mental space for all of us, it can be easy to forget the impact the fires have had on so many people's lives, from the devastating loss of life to whole communities being destroyed. For many, the bushfires reinforced the importance of putting in place effective policies to tackle the climate crisis. 
In our Managing Bushfires episode, our panel of experts discussed this as well as shared their own stories about experiencing the fires firsthand. In this first clip, Crawford School's Dr. Siobhan McDonnell shares her very personal account of being caught in the fires on the New South Wales south coast around New Year's Eve. So we had uh, a very memorable New Year's. Uh, We were caught in the fires down the coast. So we had Christmas in Melbourne. I I flew back from Madrid from the climate change negotiations, um, kind of packaged everyone up in the car, went down to Melbourne for Christmas. After Christmas, we went to visit people on the Victorian coast, made the way, uh, the long way around East Gippsland, which was on fire, and carefully made our way into Mystery Bay at the base of Tilba, which was safe at the time. And so we had one day on the 28th of kind of calm, smoky beach, and the the night everything became very smoky. I was keeping an eye on the app. I woke up with an asthma attack in the middle of the night and was really concerned, and there was nothing being updated on the app at that point in time. In the morning, it was a black and orange sky. And so for New Year's Day, I had in the back of my mind the experience of the Canberra bushfires where my family lost our house. And I know that people die on roads and I know that people die defending houses. So I just wanted to make sure that road access was okay And we got out to the Naruma Evacuation Centre as fast as we could and then we bunkered down there. But we had a period of time there and because I researched disasters and climate change, I had this kind of period of cognitive dissonance of really watching local volunteers try as hard as they could to, to manage a situation that was so badly prepared for in terms of disaster management preparation. You know, you had people flooding in from all kinds of directions and then you had roads being cut off. You had very few boots on the ground in terms of firefighters relative to the scale of what was occurring. You had loss of power. You had loss of communications. Um, You had real problems in terms of food supply. Luckily, you had water. Um, The New South Wales Disaster Management Authority took 24 hours to, to hit the location, which is really interesting from my perspective of kind of looking at disaster management in the Pacific. So post-cyclone PAM, Australian humanitarian agencies hit Vanuatu 12 hours later after the cyclone. But the timing of getting into Naruma was much longer. And then when people came because communications weren't working, the flow of information was really difficult. And what you found was similar to the Canberra bushfires, people were separated So the evacuation centre that we were in, you had a whole range of really distressed families where some people had stayed to protect properties, other people had been travelling down the coast for a day to pick up a boat motor and had been stopped. And so the questioning that night was very much about, well, how do I get a message or how do I get communication flow occurring? And there there was no answer for any of of those sets of problems because really there was that loss of, of communications. So difficult and yet these kind of local volunteers and this incredible cooperation that was, you know, that was going on. And so we just bunkered down and waited and 
watch the ash fall from the sky and watch, you know, the smoke roll in. And the great thing about Naruma is that you've got estuaries all around as well. So I was pretty confident that, you know, it was going to be, it was all going to be fine really in terms of a location. And then the roads opened up and we did, um, because I had this stuff in the back of my head, as soon as we got to Naruma, you know, in the preceding period of time, I had filled up the car. So as soon as the roads opened up, we began that very slow drive up the Brown Mountain and looked at the charred landscape and looked at the the bodies of animals who'd been trying to flee all the way up. And I think for my little family, you know, we were not we were not hugely impacted. We had that very short period of time, but I have one kid who has been really distressed because his whole world flipped, you know. He really everything became very out of control. So the how you manage the grief of these experiences I think is something we need to have a conversation about and how we as a community come together and begin to have the conversations that we need to have about how we live in these damaged landscapes, the the way that we can communicate this to each other and to our children I think becomes really important. And for me, this is about the my scholarship and the spaces that I am active in. But I think, you know, that's something we can explore as we go. Moving stuff and our heart goes out to everyone affected by the bushfire crisis. Let's stay with the bushfire crisis for the next couple of clips. One thing we're often reminded of on Policy Forum Pod is that while policy may be crafted and enacted by politicians and public servants, it impacts people in very personal ways. In February, we took a look at the impact of the bushfires on those who were already struggling before disaster struck. In the episode From the Ashes, we heard from Dr. John Fowson from Per Capita and Crawford's own Professor Sharon Bessel about the dire economic need in bushfire-affected areas, Australia's social security system and democratising the delivery of hope and social services. Let's have a listen to those two clips now. We built the social security system to help people at a time of need. Um, that's being whittled away, as we know, and that's evidenced by uh, the, the point that Peter made about the, the level of the new start payment, of course, uh, but in many other ways, the, the quality, uh, the nature of service provision, the fact that we've seen so many jobs outsourced uh, from Centrelink to people who are uh, you know, not necessarily trained to deal with the people who, who need to contact Centrelink. So we, we do have an opportunity there to reframe what our social security system should mean for all of us. My concern is, going back to Peter's point about the economic ravages in those particular areas, is if we are silent, I wouldn't be surprised if we see the government going down the path of just as we see it pathologising and demonising individuals who are experiencing unemployment, for instance, or homelessness or um, any other uh, need for income support, 
we are going to see communities being pathologised and demonised. We've seen this before, and the Northern Territory intervention is is a prime case of this. And we saw, uh, you know, remember when um, John Howard gave that famous speech on the tenth anniversary of his prime ministership, and he spoke about the zones of chaos the zones of chaos that affect young people's lives. And of course, it was all building up to the whole language and actions of the intervention. I'm concerned that if we don't collectively uh, change the frame, then we may well see a move in that direction rather than a really constructive engagement uh, with areas of, uh, of very dire e- economic need. I, I think, you know, Sharon, you're, you're absolutely right in saying that this, this is a, a, a potential turning point, but the leadership won't come from the government. Mm, it's got to come right. from us on the ground. And I think part of that is a discussion about the the role of government and the collective responsibility that we have and the role of volunteerism. Because what we've seen in response to this crisis, and I, I think it is overwhelming to think what the volunteers who have been fighting the fires have been able to do um, and the debt of gratitude that we all have to them. Um, it's incredible how much people have been prepared to donate um, to a whole range of GoFundMe and sites that have been set up to um, to a range of organisations. But is that sustainable mm. if this is the new normal? Will people be willing and able to continue to give in the way that people have, have given for this crisis? And we've seen that response as a global response, you know, with everyone from tennis players to singers, you know, donating large amounts of money. But if this is the new normal, I don't think we can rely on that. And I guess it does worry me somewhat that that generous response that we've seen in terms of volunteerism will allow the government to kind of mm. pull back even further sure. because someone else will take responsibility. Whereas fundamentally, this requires us to think very deeply about the role that the government plays um, in, in the new context that we're facing. And I don't think we can rely on the fact that this may not happen for 10 years. I, th- I think that's um, you know a really good point about um, our attitude to volunteerism. And, you know, the, the Prime Minister, um, you know, that the comment he made early in the piece uh, regarding the fireys w- wanting to be there as a, a, an excuse for not uh, providing any kind of um, financial support uh, while they were away from their uh, their work and so forth, uh, you know, just beggars belief. But it, but it also you know raises that spectre uh, that Sharon refers to of volunteerism and charity being the default mode of delivering social services and social security, and that's what we do not want. But it's it's the path upon which we have already started to venture, uh, and charity is never a substitute for justice. Uh, you know, and uh, yeah, a lot of people have benefited in in uh, you know, incredible ways from support uh, from the charitable sector. But we we cannot allow this to let government off the hook for government to abrogate its responsibility to ensure uh, you know the the collective good. It, it's it's really interesting uh, you know talking about the new normal. In some ways, the new normal is the old normal, let free to run its tr- destructive trajectory. It's the normalising the of powerlessness 
and uh, you know the, the 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 threat of bushfire is in, in incredibly emblematic of that sense of powerlessness against what is about to happen and i i would argue that the the way we need to to rethink and reorganize collectively goes to the very heart of addressing that sense of powerlessness we need to say no to that um, acceptance of powerlessness uh, we need to start talking about uh, how collectively we can take control of our future so that the powerlessness experienced by many people um, and you know this this goes to the heart of poverty and inequality in Australia beyond the bushfire crisis that uh, that, that that this is not normalized that people have a sense of collective empowerment to change the shape of our economy, to change, to, to reconfigure how we think about the economy uh, instead of it being uh, for, the, for the benefit of very few, uh, that we actually democratise it, democratise the way we, we distribute resources as well as the, the, distrib- the redistribution of hope, of course. Uh, and you know, it goes back to, to what neoliberalism Means and I love that quote from Pierre Bourdieu, uh, the French sociologist. When he says, oh, "What is neoliberalism? It's a program for destroying collective structures which may impede the pure market logic." And I think that's what's got to lie at the heart of uh, the conversations we have about reconfiguring the way we look at economy and society. That's really powerful stuff. Thanks so much to John and Sharon for taking the time to share their insights. In this next section, we want to broadly look at the importance of evidence-based policy. As we've seen with the bushfires, expert advice is not always heeded, and this can have devastating consequences. In June 2019, we were joined by Anna Maria Arabia, the CEO of the Australian Academy of Science and former Australian Chief Scientist and former Vice-Chancellor of the Australian National University, Ian Chupp, for a discussion on how to get science into policy, politics and public discussion. Of course, a significant challenge for many scientists is the often hostile environment they can find themselves in when discussing their work online, particularly for those scientists working on climate change. And in this clip, Ian reflects on the responsibility that scientists have to share their research, even when it's difficult to do so. Well, I, I mean, I acknowledge that it's tough, and it's really tough. And um, and as you would imagine, as uh, chief scientist, I experienced a bit of it directly. And nobody likes to be hated by people, especially ones you've never met and who would walk past you in the street rather than own up to the fact that they hate you face to face. So they hide behind something or other. Um, and, and it, it, it can be, it can be quite tough and quite nasty. And, um, I, I think, uh, but as Anna Maria said, I think institutionally we've got to support and encourage people to do that because uh, to get out there and, and and talk in publicly and and in an accessible way um, for a number of reasons. But and Anna Maria goes some very good ones. But other ones, you know, include the fact that the people that you're talking to are the ones who are paying your salary by and large. 
you know, if you work in a in a typically Australian research environment. So there's a responsibility. There's a there. responsibility to go out there, and I think you should accept the responsibility. We, we collectively have to accept the responsibility that we have an obligation of the people who pay us and from whom we want more money in the end, when we will argue for what reason and so on, but from whom we want more, then they have they have a right, if they're interested enough, to know what we're doing and to be explained to them in a non-patronising um, non-dumbing down sort of way where you can explain the science with carefully chosen words that make it accessible to people who aren't trained in the discipline as well as you. And I'm in that position. I mean, I'm not, I don't understand some of the science that goes on in Australia. And if I talk to a physicist talking about quantum physics or quantum number generation, which is my current fancy, then I like them to talk in terms that I can understand. Um, I don't like to be bamboozled by the fact that they know more than I do about something because I'm happy to concede that at the beginning. So you find a way of sort of – and then you support them. And we should have an incentive structure, I think, that that um, that encourages it. And I personally believe that the incentive structures that have been developed over the last 20 or 30 years – where, you know, publications in learned journals are important, where, you know, doing certain things, you know, getting large numbers of PhD students through and all the rest of it, the universities sort of doing their um, excellence and researches, all of those sorts of things, really actually um, make it more difficult institutionally for scientists to get out there and talk about the things in ways they would like to talk about them, but in a way that the public can access too. And um, I, I think it is a serious um, t- a time for serious reflection on how well we encourage people to do it and how we support them, as Anna Maria said, um, how we support them when they do and they're on the you know, sharp edge of somebody else's um, uh, anonymous uh, um, 140 characters or whatever it is. I don't use it, so I don't know how many characters it is. Partly I don't want to use it because I don't need to be bruised by people. Some wise words there from someone who has been at the pointy end of some very difficult public debates. But what if the criticism you receive for your research doesn't just come from the trolls online, but comes from governments or even world leaders? Well, someone who's no stranger to this type of controversy is former United Nations Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty and Human Rights, Philip Alston. His hard-hitting report into Britain's social welfare system led to a ferocious backlash from the country's leaders and its media. In July last year, Sharon Bassell and myself talked to him about the impact of Brexit on the UK economy and how he copes with the tremendous personal criticism that comes his way. Well, uh, two things. One... um Strength of pushback is actually a good thing. Uh, It means the report has had an impact. Uh, It's better than being ignored. Uh, Secondly, um, no government ever says, uh, oh, my God, what a great report. You've really exposed our our shortcomings and uh, now we see the light. Um, So it's to be expected, I think, that government ministers say, you know, this is not true. The situation is very different. But in the end, that formal complaint with the UN didn't come about. Is that correct? Uh, I uh, am not aware of any formal complaint having been lodged. Uh, I suspect that uh, a lot of letters might have been sent to the High Commissioner saying that they weren't happy. But I think the difficulty for the UK government is what they're really going to say uh, I think the fact that the report 
has garnered something like 4,000 different media articles um, around the world um, makes it very difficult for them to simply dismiss it as politicized nonsense, uh, which is what the um, Chancellor of the Exchequer called it. We're about to see a new Prime Minister in the UK, most likely Boris Johnson, we'll know shortly. Um, But UK politics is still going to be dominated by the talk of Brexit for some time to come and probably for years to come. You have said that the UK is screwing itself royally for the future over its Brexit obsession. What do you think, gazing into your crystal ball, is likely to happen under a new Prime Minister? Well, I mean, I think that all the Treasury studies that I was uh, informed of show that Brexit is going to have a very significant economic impact, and that impact will be huge if it's a no-deal impact. Um, My position was that if the British people really decide that they uh, value the independence that they think they'll get from Brexit to the point where they're prepared to give up six, seven, eight percent of GDP, then that's their choice. But the tragic thing, of course, is that the uh, people living in poverty, the ones who are going to suffer the most, uh, they'll suffer from the loss of EU funds. Uh, They'll suffer because the government will be under serious uh, pressure to cut back on everything. And there is no planning, as far as I've seen, uh, to uh, address the impact on that group Uh, that will clearly come out of Brexit. Finally, Philip, we'd like to turn and look at how and why you do the role you do. Your UN role is unpaid, yet it subjects you to intense criticism. The Daily Mail in the UK mocked your grand job title. They said your report insulted the national intelligence and they called you a loudmouth law professor. I guess at least one of those things is true, which given it's the Daily Mail, maybe they're to be commended for getting one of their facts right. Uh, And in the US, Nikki Haley, the US ambassador to the UN, accused you of political bias and wasting UN money by examining poverty in the US. How do those types of personal attacks affect you? Well, uh, they affect me positively. Um, I think the challenge is to act as a catalyst uh, to get attention to these issues And if you get uh, Nikki Haley in response to a letter signed by a large number of prominent US uh, congressional representatives um, actually being forced to address poverty, uh, I think that's a very good thing. I mean, the consequences are often very bizarre. So the White House Council of Economic Advisers put out a report which said actually – Uh, Alston's got it completely wrong. In fact, he uses the wrong statistics and when we use our preferred stats, we find out that there are almost no poor people at all in the United States and we're happy to say that the war on poverty that Lyndon Johnson began has now been won and we can stop paying attention to this. But all of that's good because poverty has to be turned into a political issue Uh, The thing that I've always hammered on about is that it's a political choice. Uh, We have in all of our societies the ability to 
solve the worst of poverty if we really want to put the resources into it. It's simply that we choose not to. We look away. We want to put money into other things. Philip, we've got a, another question from one of our listeners that's in a similar vein. Um, this one's from Anna Greta Hunter. Um, and she says, what is Phil Polston's approach to the nasty response, both trolls and government? Is it to address directly or to ignore? Um, I mean, I engage whenever I possibly can with whoever. Uh, I answer most emails that I get. Uh, some of them are so off the wall and abusive that I don't bother. But uh, if people want to engage, I do. Uh, I made a very big effort to speak to the British ambassador in uh, Geneva. Uh, they wouldn't uh, arrange a meeting for me. Uh, I think engagement is really essential. Philip Alston there. It was a tremendous discussion and I'd encourage you to give it a listen if you haven't already. And if you'd like to hear more from Philip Olson, we have got a very special online event coming up on Thursday, the 1st of October. It starts at 10pm in Australian Eastern Time, uh, and Philip Olson will be in conversation with Sabina Alkir from the Oxford Poverty and Human Development Initiative at Oxford University, Sharon Bessel, and the conversation is going to be led by our own Mark Kenny, host of the Democracy Sausage podcast. So do register for that event. We'll leave a link in the show notes. Now, turning back to our discussion, as both Philip and Ian indicated, creating evidence-based policy can be especially difficult around highly sensitive political issues. One such issue where public and political fear can often drown out expertise is illicit drug policy. After decades of prohibition and the war on drugs, are Australia's current policy settings doing more harm than good in this space? To answer that question, we were joined in November 2019 by ANU College of Laws Professor Desmond Manderson, Dr. David Caldicott from Calvary Hospital, and Dr. Tracy Beck Fenwick from the ANU School of Politics and International Relations. And in this clip from what was an excellent podcast, our guests looked at the evidence and politics surrounding the pill testing debate with Dr. Paul Verville. Cannabis laws are not the only harm reduction policy that's attracted criticism from the federal government. Minister Hunt's also pushed back on the ideas of implementing pill testing at festivals, saying, and, and I quote, the idea that we would be condoning, encouraging, and supporting the expansion of their consumption is, to my mind, utterly unthinkable. David? That's a complete straw man argument, isn't it? It's mm -hmm. just nonsense that pill testing doesn't do any of those things. I think that... The drugs policy in general, but particularly in um, in the area of pill testing, is a fine example for any upcoming youngsters who are looking into drugs policy um, of cultural cognition. Um, there's some virtue signaling going on here. Um, th the facts are no longer important in the public ut utterances about um, drugs policy. Mo most of what we hear from a political source in Australia about things like pill testing like, are factually, demonstrably disprovable. Um, and they are appealing instead to a base, a tribal base, um, which where this whole idea of uh, cultural cognition comes in from. There's some very clever people at Yale who started looking into this as far as gun law is concerned in the uh, United States. 
And we are seeing more and more in this sort of post-truth world, people aligning themselves to tribes. And these would include, I mean, the Venn diagrams are quite clearly demarcated. Um, you would have people who would have been against uh, the same-sex marriage uh, plebiscite who would also be very much against pill testing. Uh, you, you look at social media and it's quite extreme. Some people think that those people who consume drugs in Australia, they take their choices and they deserve to die if it happens. Um, so we're, we're just feeding into that uh, and um, – you know, it's actually time for grown-ups to have a conversation about this. And to be honest, the role of the expert in uh, in Australia is something that transcends even the narrow nature of this discussion. Expertise now, uh, be it through publication, through research, or through just through uh, having been in a field for a period of time, actually doesn't hold the sway that it does in decision of policies. I mean, those kinds of comments, I mean, they, they just make me want to spit, really. Because, <laughs> I mean, I think it's very clear in this case. We've got a very specific kind of proposal. And I don't think there's any doubt that people are dying because we are not doing pill testing. Young people, maybe just taking drugs, you know, once at a music festival or something like mm. that or whatever. And, and there are deaths. And there are deaths because there's not – and, again, the evidence on this is very clear, pill testing – will and does save lives and, and we can point to those lives and we can say these are the people that you are prepared to sacrifice on the altar of your meaningless ideological rhetoric. Thanks so much to Ian, Sharon, Des, Tracy, David and Paul for making the case for evidence-based policy once again. We'll take a quick break here but we'll be back with more in our special Policy Forum pod best of episode shortly. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. In this section, we are going to turn our focus to Indigenous Australia. We recognise that reconciliation is a journey for all Australians, and we want to play some small part by ensuring that Policy Forum Pod is a platform where Indigenous experts can share their insights on issues of national importance. Indigenous health is a topic that led to one of the most inspiring, moving and confronting conversations we've had on the podcast. In September 2019, we spoke with Julie Tongs, the CEO of Winunga Aboriginal Health and Community Services, on our episode, Pilots But No Plane, Landing Better Mental Health Policies. 
In the episode, we discuss the state of Australia's mental health policies and take a look at why Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people suffer disproportionately from a system that is disconnected from the communities that it's supposed to be serving. Julie shared with us her incredibly personal and devastating story about the loss of her son and discussed why more mental health policy plans are not the answer to the health challenges Indigenous people are facing. And a warning, the following clips will touch on the story of an Indigenous person who has died. Some people may find these themes confronting. Uh, Look, I've got a real problem with plans. We've got more plans than, you know, the National Library. And uh, the thing for me is that we had the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. We had the National Aboriginal Health Strategy. We had the Bringing Them Home report. All the recommendations, if they'd have been implemented, we wouldn't be in the position that we're in now. I don't know how many more plans that we need to have. We need action on the ground. And when I say that with Wenunga, the service that I run here in Canberra, we have 1,860 clients with a diagnosed mental illness, so that's schizophrenia, um, bipolar, and all those um, mental illnesses that have a definition. But then we've got another and probably more people with personality disorders, but that's not a classified mental illness. And a lot of this comes from the historical trauma. We've got prisons full of people with mental illness. The substance is secondary. The substance is... The the mental health is the cause and the substance is the symptom. So we, we see people as a whole at Wanunga. We don't see body parts. We've set, had to set up a second reception so that we can care, better care for our mental health clients because they not only have a mental illness, they've got multiple other chronic diseases. Mm. So their diabetes, their heart, all of those other things. And so if their di- um, mental health isn't in control, then they've got no insight into their physical well-being. Mm. So we do do things differently. We don't silo or pigeonhole people. We work with the whole person and we have psychiatrists, psychologists, mental health nurse, drug and alcohol nurse, GPs, um, midwives, nurses, and the backbone of the service are the Aboriginal workers. So we have drug and alcohol workers, mental health workers, and we call it a social health team and they case manage the client because they not only have a mental illness, they've also got child protection issues, they've got um, other social issues, they might have probation and parole issues, So, and they need to go to court, so we support them through the whole system. But we do as much as we can at the service because when we try to refer out, we hit a wall, and I think here in Canberra everything's geared to the middle. And so the disadvantaged are the forgotten people and not just Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander vulnerable people but also other people from other cultures. Can I just say, as a service provider, the rubber never hits the ground. There's always another level of bureaucracy. So... All the Royal Commissions, you know, I don't know how many more Royal Commissions we need. We know what works in our community. 
we know what the needs of our community are. We should be able to sit down with government and co-design our performance indicators and have the funding. We, we've got to fund need, not where you live. Yeah. So it's not about, you know, the North Shore or wherever. It's about the need of the people to make sure that they get the services to be able to manage their mental illness. And I, I've had my own personal experience with mental illness. I've had a son that passed away 10 years ago. He was um, an interstate truck driver and he'd used speed over the years. So, um, but he become very unwell and uh, he, um, we, he saw the psychiatrist at Wanunga and he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. At first we thought it was drug-induced psychosis. That was so challenging and even for me as the CEO of Wanunga, having to get the police to come when I couldn't get the mental health crisis team to come he, because he needed to be in hospital. Nobody was listening to me and I'd have to get our doctor, Dr Pete at the time, to ring the crisis team and when they didn't come, we'd have to ring the police because he was so unwell. I followed him to the service station and he was playing chicken with other cars, you know, like that's how unwell he was and yet we couldn't get what we needed. Now, for me, that's just, and that's me and I'm the CEO of Wanunga and I had the supports behind me with the psychiatrist and the doctor saying he needs to be in hospital. He's really unwell and on top of that he had diabetes. So he had no insight into his mental health or his diabetes and when he was on um, an order that he had to have his depot injections. As soon as he'd come off the order, he'd get really unwell again. And um, the medication is problematic as well because it makes people gain a lot of weight. And so when you've got diabetes and other chronic illnesses, it actually compounds that. And my son died from uncontrolled diabetes. So the system failed him. And even because he had children in his care, my grandchildren, I had to, I read my grandchildren. And um, even because there was an order that he couldn't come to my house while I had the kids. You know, it's just not right. The whole system's just not right. And there's a lot of families, Aboriginal families out there like me, that really, really struggle and that find it really, really difficult to access the services in a timely manner. And, you know, I think that if he'd have had the proper care and support, then he'd still be here now. So that's just, you know, I'm sharing my personal story here. But as I said, there's a lot of Aboriginal families out there like me. But on the death certificate, it didn't say that he had schizophrenia. It identified his uncontrolled diabetes. And I think that's problematic too, because if we want to get a true picture, you know, around, I think people don't understand that it was his schizophrenia mm. that caused him to um, not be able to control his his diabetes. Mm. Julie, I'm so sorry to hear your story. I cannot imagine what it's like to experience that, and I can't imagine how hard it is to share that story. But I think it's so powerful that you do because, as you said, if you can't yeah. get access, 
where does that leave other people who mm-hmm. who, who don't know the system? Mm-hmm. And it speaks so powerfully to the total breakdown of all the systems. Thank you to Julie for her incredible generosity in sharing that deeply personal story and for joining us to share her expertise as a leader in Indigenous health services. If the clips you've just listened to have raised any issues for you, you can contact Lifeline or Beyond Blue. We've left contact details for both organisations in the show notes. The new national framework on closing the gap has given Indigenous Australians shared decision-making power around community health and well-being. So is this a sign that policymakers and the community are recognising the importance of Indigenous leadership in this space? Well, we'll be recording an episode on the new framework in the coming weeks, and we're really looking forward to bringing you that discussion. Still on Indigenous Australia, now we jump back into 2020. We recorded Caring for Burning Country on the 31st of January in the wake of Australia's deadly bushfire crisis. The episode asks whether policymakers are really heeding the lessons from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people when it comes to environmental management and what value Australian policymakers place on Indigenous knowledge more broadly. In the next couple of clips, Dr Virginia Marshall from the ANU School of Regulation and Global Governance is in conversation with Dr Sue Regan about why there needs to be a total change in Australia's national consciousness in terms of how it thinks about Indigenous peoples and how to acknowledge and celebrate Aboriginal knowledge, not only in managing bushfires, but in policy more broadly. They didn't need to dismantle ATSIC. Um, That was the only platform we had for international... um, voices and exchange. So, you know, so how what's can happening? you know, if that type of forum isn't really improving communication or engagement with aboriginal communities, what might improve that communication? A total change in national consciousness. Every Absolutely. individual Australian needs to change in the way that they think about aboriginal Australia. And we need to not be seen as as stakeholders, and I've said this for many years. Um, we need to be seen as First Nations people in everything. And if you're not going to recognise Aboriginal Australia and Torres Strait Islander peoples as the first peoples, and I mean with having a legal effect, currently people are saying, let's have recognition, but it's a non-legal effect. In other words, there's nothing that flows for, from it that includes legal rights. So it's just saying, I see you there, Sue. I see you there, Anique. That's it. Mm. So we don't get any inclusion into the, the water, the National Water Initiative. We've only got a couple of clauses that are discretionary and they don't hit the mark on economic, cultural or um, commercial. Uh, we, we're the same that in that case with intellectual property. Our knowledges respected in traditional knowledge. They're not protected. Um, it's only protected if it's a new right, a newly developed form or design. So, you know, across the board, Aboriginal peoples have been demoted to the lowest common denominator in Australia. You know, we've we've seen in the, the last few months a uh, a shift, I think, in the public conversation and public awareness about some of these issues. Do you see that? Uh, and do you think that might lead to greater action and uh, in relation to uh, Indigenous uh, nations' experiences as well? 
Well, I think it's only at the end of the conversation with the bushfires that we've seen um, the example of cool burning, of Aboriginal peoples really coming to the fore and discussing that knowledge and small uh, stories uh, on the media about bush, you know, bushfires and how that actually can be um, understood with Indigenous fire management. And that is a positive step. However, um, don't underestimate the momentum that we need to actually push through to have this as an ongoing conversation. Uh, it's really an important highlight, but that's not the end. We really need to take that and build on it. And perhaps if we have these conversations more in workshops and conferences that we need to, and also community consultations, that this could actually be um, driven by the Australian people. We've seen a 16-year-old girl, Greta Thunberg, <laughs> has made a huge difference. Uh, she's really awakened young people, people at school, to say there's something wrong with this. Climate change exists. And as I've said before, climate change science is settled. And we know that young people and all people can make a difference. So we need to hold on to this message and we need to push it. That's the most important thing. And if we need to get out there and design a placard and <laughs> go up there to the National Press Club today, you need to do it. Thanks so much, Virginia. We really hope that policymakers and politicians listening to this podcast will follow your advice. Now, in our penultimate section, our guests discuss the stigmatisation of ethnic minorities in Australia, particularly Muslims. In the wake of 9-11 and the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, the attitudes of many in the West towards Muslims became much more hostile. Many Muslims in Australia, the United States and beyond experienced discrimination were even subject to physical violence. In October 2019, we were joined by human rights and refugee advocate Julian Burnside to discuss Australia's role in the establishment of the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights and why there's so much hostility in the rhetoric surrounding refugees and asylum seekers. In the two clips coming up, Julian traces the roots of the term illegals in relation to refugees and sheds light on the conditions refugees are facing in Australia's detention centres, as well as examines the increased hostility towards Muslims in the West. The, the, the term illegal, actually, it's quite interesting to see, as far as I'm aware, it was first used at a crucial point. The Tampa litigation was um, John Howard's way of trying to re revive his electoral position. Um, it was the last last throw of the dice. You know, I mean, he was not looking like he'd be re-elected in the election that had to take place in November 2001. Um, the Tampa episode came along and uh, the judgment in the Tampa case, there was a trial that ran for about five or six days. Um, the judgment in the Tampa case of the trial judge was handed down at 2.15 in the afternoon, Melbourne time, on the 11th of September 2001. Eight hours later, the attack on America happened, and all of a sudden, John Howard started calling boat people illegal because then most boat people were Muslims who were fleeing persecution, and um, after 9-11 in America, you could do or say anything you wanted about Muslims and get away with it. And it's um, shocking. It's, it's, it, 
astonishing when you consider the history of it. Um, the Refugees Convention was um, put together, it was accepted by the UN in 1951. Uh, Australia had helped put it together. But Australia's early involvement was in formulating the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, along with Eleanor Roosevelt. And um, uh, that had an interesting history because it was accepted with no dissent at all by the UN General Assembly on the 10th of December 1948. And it was an Australian who chaired the General Assembly, Doc Evatt. Australia had actually contributed significantly to the Universal Declaration. Um, and Article 14 of the Universal Declaration says that every human being has the right to seek and enjoy asylum. And yet we are turning our backs on it, even though we helped formulate it. Breathtaking. I often think about that just a little bit differently and frame it as how would you want the person you love most in the world to be treated? Because I think sometimes it becomes even more powerful when we think about um, our husband, our wife, our brother, our sister, our child mm. being treated um, appallingly. Yeah. And I wonder, just leading on from that to the, the real conditions that refugees are facing, uh, particularly in Australia's offshore detention centres, how would you characterise that treatment? You know, how are people being treated on a day-to-day -day basis? Uh, they are being treated appallingly. And in fact, you may remember that there was a bloke called Sean Hands who worked for the immigration department for about five years, I think. And then <clears throat> last year, he jumped ship and spoke out very powerfully against um, offshore detention. And I just happened to have brought with me uh, the text of something he wrote. He said, <clears throat> on Nauru, I met a man who started to shake my faith in the system he was essentially the same as the man I had interviewed in my first year working with the department. His eyes were constantly unfocused. He was only ever partially present. I saw pictures of him in his life before Nauru. They showed a happy man, almost unrecognisable compared with the gaunt, haunted apparition now in front of me. Nothing I knew about his past could explain his transformation. He hadn't been tortured. He hadn't suffered sexual assault. He didn't claim to have suffered anything particularly traumatic in his home country. The conclusion was inescapable. We had done this to him. We had effectively destroyed a man that he wasn't just indistinguishable from a torture victim. He was indistinguishable from the most damaged torture victim I've ever encountered, and I've interviewed many. Now, that is a former member of the Department of Immigration talking about how the effect we've had on one man held on Nauru. And, of course, there is the um, historical fact that um, Omid Masamali, he and his family were assessed um, on Nauru as refugees. <clears throat> they were told that they would be living for an indefinite time in Nauru, uh, and the locals in Nauru are very hostile to the refugees. Uh, he was so desperate at the idea that he would be forced to live in Nauru for an untold number of years that he went into a public area, doused himself in petrol and set himself alight, and he died. And um, we, you know, if, if you've got a person who's prepared to set themselves on fire in order to escape life sentence on Nauru, you understand how badly they've been treated. We actually, Australia introduced 
a provision in Section 42 of the Australian Border Force Act, which made it a criminal offence for anyone working with the Department of Immigration um, to disclose anything that they came across in that capacity, anything they learnt in that capacity. So doctors, for example, working for the department indirectly through subcontractors, um, if, if a doctor becomes aware of a case of child sex abuse uh, in Australia, it's a criminal offence if they don't report it. If they come across it in the Department of, of uh, Immigration, they commit an offence punishable by two years jail if they disclose it to anyone. You know, why do we need a law like that? Julian, what, what you're describing is horrendous. I mean, this is such an affront to the values that I think many Australians, if not most Australians, would would actually say they hold dear, you know, around giving people a fair go, around respecting others, around respecting the dignity of other people. What are your thoughts on public sentiment around these issues? Do you think that the, the political rhetoric and the policies that have landed us in this situation align with public sentiment? Do you think that no. people really don't understand what's going on? I think Perhaps. people don't understand what, what is going on because they've been persuaded by dishonest politicians and the Murdoch press that these people are illegals and queue jumpers and pushing them away as border protection. I mean, have you ever heard any parliamentarian on the Liberal side contradict those falsehoods? No. No. It's the short answer. <laughs> Thanks, Julian. It's... Hard to believe that this is a conversation we've been having in Australia for so long, but as of July this year, there are still over 350 people in detention in Papua New Guinea and Nauru. Many far-right parties in Australia and around the world have latched onto the issue of terrorism and sought to demonise the Islamic faith and community. So what impact are these parties having on the Islamic community in Australia? And are policymakers blind to the threat of right-wing extremism? Recorded just days after the horrific Christchurch terrorist attacks in March 2019, Anoush Mushtaq, chair of their Iraqi task force, joined us to discuss why stigmatisation of Muslims in Australia has been so incredibly toxic and policy responses to extremism of all kinds. So I think the political landscape, in my opinion, starting from Tony Abbott up to now, has been um, uh, focused uh, and, and there's a lot of hate speech which goes around and also marginalisation of Muslims in the media, whatever they say. So it's not only Fraser Anning, but if you look at Pauline Hansen, and she said that Islam is a disease. Then Scott Morrison um, in the Melbourne attack last year said extreme radical Islam. These kind of things does nothing but all it does is produce more terrorists. And I'm talking about the rise of right-wing extremism because they are fueling uh, what these people actually want. When we look at uh, Muslims in Australia and New Zealand, we are in a minority group. And there's very few people who actually go um, choose the jihadi ideology or go through extremism or radicalization. So we really need to think about what we are doing here because – you know, Pauline Hansen rocking up in Parliament House with a burqa and saying this should be banned or halal food should, food should be banned. 
there's a lot of Muslims, doctors, lawyers, um, teachers who are actually contributing to Australia. And, um, you know, even a person like me, I'm, I'm fighting against any kind of terrorism, Islamist terrorism. I'm educating people. So we need to realize that you know, hating Muslims or, or producing hate speech against Muslims is only going to uh, not help the politicians and the counterterrorism experts. And um, these kind of – and even like um, immigration laws, what they're saying about Muslims and um, about opening up um, – Sorry, what was that um, offshore detention center? Christmas Island. Christmas Island as well. So it, it's all stigmatizing, and stigmatizing is toxic, in my opinion. Since we recorded that episode, the issue of right-wing extremism has only grown in prominence and given policymakers plenty to consider in the way they seek to counter violent extremism. Now, for our final section, we turn to the issue of the year, the COVID-19 crisis. Before the virus had turned into the international disaster we now know it to be, the world was focused on China's response. Did the Chinese government do everything it could to respond to the crisis, or did censorship in the early weeks mean that it was too late to contain the virus, letting it loose on the rest of the world? In February, we were joined by Yun Jiang of the ANU Australian Centre on China and the World, Professor Martin Kirk from the ANU College of Health and Medicine, and Dr Nick Coatesworth, just before he became one of Australia's Deputy Chief Medical Officers. In this clip from our episode, Coronavirus and a State of Unease, the panel examined China's management of the coronavirus outbreak and the intimate connection of science and politics in the area of health policy. Oh, I think it's important to remember that the initial reaction of the Chinese authorities is actually censorship first. So the virus was first um, detected around early December. It was reported to the World Health Organization on 31st of December. But there was no any um, public health measures taken then. In fact, they detained or punished eight doctors from Wuhan for spreading rumors about the virus, um, one of which um, died recently. It's quite a tragic story about that. It is only until 20th of January when there was a new central directive from Xi Jinping about putting all effort behind containing the virus that, you know, all these drastic measures of locking down the cities, closing down public transport, that start to take effect. So I think China has actually lost valuable time in containing the virus because by then, I think about 5 million people have already left Wuhan. During that time, during those weeks when people were traveling, um, they, there was no public health measures taken. So only afterwards that now we have, we're seeing quite drastic measures of, um, people restricting people's movement. In terms of how effective these, well, a lot of people have already left. So we're seeing a lot of, you know, people traveling overseas. Um, there's a tourist group in Australia, for example. But I guess, from Chinese authorities' perspective, they want to be seen as doing something. There is a bit doubt of. Uh, I'm not a public health health expert, so I'm not sure how effective those you know travel restrictions, closing down public transport is, but it has a big effect on ordinary people. Well, I've heard cases where, for example, people who may have a virus but they can't actually get to the hospital to get tested. Um, so that's another problem with those drastic measures. 
it sounds like China was quite slow to respond. Is this trying to uh, a case of trying to close the stable door after the horse has already bolted? Is is can the I damage a, already done? Can I give a counterpoint to that? Because, um, like, I've I've been watching, you know, China CDC and the Chinese public health system develop over the last 20 years. Not, you know, I'm not an expert in that, but I do understand about how public health works in different countries around the globe. And I would say they actually responded reasonably quickly. And while it might look like they weren't containing it, they would have been doing a lot of investigation and trying to understand. And if we go back to, you know, nearly 20 years to SARS, there were delays of several months there. And their public health system was not as well developed. But in the last 20 years, China has made significant efforts at the central government and at the provincial government level to actually train people to investigate disease and conduct surveillance. And I've been incredibly impressed in recent years about how good they've been at some of the things. They are as, you know, they've been doing investigations that are as good as any other, you know, sort of first world country. So I think you know, we've got to be careful not to confuse control measures with action. You know, it's not only control measures like restricting movement, those types of things, that is action. There's a whole lot of other things like efforts to understand and do things. Um, I totally agree with you. Um, We know that they've been investigating um, this virus for quite a while before the 20th of January announcement, for example, and we know that China has put a lot of effort into its Scientists, it has um, quite a lot of scientists working on this, but science is one thing, but then politics is another thing. So, for example, the local government, um, even though knowing that there was an outbreak, did nothing to inform the public at all. In fact, they organized mm. a banquet for 40,000 families just a few days um, before shutting down the city. Yeah. Um, so, even though we have all these Scientists working and they're great working on these things, but the politics doesn't really follow. Yeah, but I think it's, it's extremely hard in these settings to make good governance decisions about what to do, particularly when it's an emerging virus that hasn't been seen before. So I, you know, I would give a bit of, you know, I think it's incredibly difficult. I would say every government has spent weeks trying to work out what to do. And and funnily enough, they've come up with different ideas about what works and what's important. So, you know, I, I think it, it's easy to say they should have done things differently and we we might do that in six months' time, but it's really hard in the heat of the moment. I mean, you get you get an intersection here at a, at a sort of higher level um, between, um, as as you say, the politics and the science mm. of infectious diseases, which, which which is the sort of the subject of my PhD research. But it's it's intimately connected, and um, what what Martin's referring to as well is is a sort of blotting of the cop China's copybook in SARS, and that sort of element of mistrust. Uh, with the data that's coming out, um, dates back 17 years. Now, uh, we need to accept that China's moved a long way in terms of its public health um, surveillance apparatus since then. Equally, we need to um, respect that there's a lot of uncertainty around this virus, which is why um, the control measures are changing on a daily basis. But um, it's fascinating to think that um, 
You know, the science is one thing, but this has global diplomatic economic ramifications, um, every single country potentially being affected, and then China's relationship um, with the world, with Australia, um, quarantining students that are supposed to come out here to start first semester in universities. These are big deal foreign policy issues. Um, and it's not the infectious diseases physicians that are dealing with this. It's the diplomats. It's up at the highest levels of government. It's hard to believe what has unfolded since that discussion and the damage the virus has caused around the world. But it was a privilege to have Yun, Martin and Nick in our studio for such an important discussion. And that brings our Policy Forum pod best of to a close. A huge thank you to all of the great people that we've heard from over the past year and who play a big role in making Policy Forum pod what it is today. We absolutely wouldn't be able to do this without you. A big thank you to to the Policy Forum Pod production team that makes sure these episodes get produced each week. Angus Blackman, Yulia Ahrens, Pat Cooney and Connie Hagel, you are all amazing. And the same goes to you, our listeners. Policy Forum Pod has grown so much thanks to your dedication and for that we will always be grateful. Now, Policy Forum Pod will be competing in the Listener's Choice category of the Australian Podcast Awards, and we'd again like to ask for your support. As soon as nominees are announced, go to australianpodcastawards.com and put in your vote. We will be giving you regular reminders, don't you worry. Listeners, also don't forget to subscribe to Policy Forum Pod. We're on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you normally get your favourite shows from. And if you're feeling really generous, you might even want to leave us a review. We always love hearing your feedback. And don't forget to join us on Facebook, the home base of our pod squad. You can find us there under Policy Forum Pod. Your membership comes with early access to our Ask Policy Forum Pod series as the podcast where you get to ask the questions and we'll be making another episode soon. Plus, on the Facebook page, you can chat to uh, many other engaged listeners and our pod team about all things public policy. We're excited to welcome you there. And if you're not on Facebook, there are, of course, other ways to reach us. You can send us a message on Twitter where we're Apps Policy Forum. That's A-P-P-S Policy Forum. Or just shoot us an email via podcast at policyforum.net. Now, before I let you go, also a quick reminder that we'll be bringing you another episode in our special Making the Invisible Visible mini-series on Tuesday. I've been really enjoying those episodes, so don't forget to tune in for that. Finally, we have discussed some really hard-hitting and emotional topics today, and if any of these have raised issues for you, you can reach out to Lifeline on 131114, that's 131114, or Beyond Blue on 1300. 224636. That's 1300 224636. We'll leave those numbers along with the links to those organizations' websites in the show notes. We'll be back with another episode of Policy Forum Pod soon, but until then, cheerio from me. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.